James, and this is the Chats with James podcast. In this episode, I'm chatting with Michael Gatozzi. This episode was recorded on the 26th of December, 2020. For more episodes and show notes, please visit jamesmunns.com slash podcast. New episodes of the podcast are released every Tuesday. Enjoy! Special thanks to Louis Zong for the music. Cool. So how you been? I've been doing pretty good. Uh, I got to... You know, I've had I've had a lot of this one thought to kind of take off from burnout and my company has been very, very kind of generous, giving me that time off. Um, and so I've been able to, like, kind of recover and get into a better shape. So uh, I'll be able to at least hit the new year, hit the ground running in the new year without, like, tripping and falling all over myself <laughs> every yeah, step I'm, of the way. So I'm doing the same thing, but opposite. I'm just starting two months off to kind of recover from near to sort of beginning of burnout so luckily yeah. uh ferris is now two years old which is and there's a crew of really awesome people there so i'm actually super excited to follow what they do and not be in the loop for every decision for a little bit so it's gonna yeah. be it's gonna be good i think so i'm like a it's, week it's, into eight weeks of time off now nice i had i had about like six or so so it's cool. kind of a similar length i I've, i felt better but uh you have, to, you have to make sure that you do the stuff so that when you get to do a bunch of things <laughs> to get ready for when you go back, because otherwise, if you don't like start therapy or like mm. start eating better, or doing all these other things, you're going to go back and then you're going to have the same exact habits that led you to burnout. And so you got to kind of start changing them. Um, that yeah, way, when you go back, it, like you have the framework to kind of support you the whole way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. There's for me, I've noticed in the past, like normally at most jobs, I, I noticed that I started leaving jobs after like a year and a half, two years, because that's about my threshold of when I've like poured too much in. And at some point it just like hits a wall. And I realized that like the two to five weeks that I usually take off between jobs is the most restful recovery time because I spend like a week doing nothing and just staring at the ceiling and then kind of like a week yep. sort of starting <laughs> to get back into things. And then like usually by the end of like four to six weeks i'm just like give me something i need something like give me a real problem to solve like i'm ready to solve problems and even when i was like after my first big job i worked my first job out of college for like three years and then i just went backpacking for like i think it was two or three months because i was mm -hmm. moving to europe and i was looking for jobs and backpacking and i had paid off my student loans and stuff like that and and i realized like after a month or two the first month I desperately needed that time off to be doing nothing. But like after a month or two, like the engineering bones in my body were like, you need, you are just stop you visiting museums and build something. <laughs> like it was very yeah, much yeah. that. So I, I know I, that, it, it comes back to me pretty quickly, but yeah, you're right. Like I've had to figure out how to reach that equilibrium. Cause I've been really bad at just like, 100% or 0% are like the two settings or really like 110% or 0% is sort of what my brain is able to do and either mm -hmm. finding like a more healthy pace than 110% or just like every three to six months build in two weeks off to just disappear and just admit that like I need a strong decoupling step or something more regularly than every 18 to 24 months. Yeah, like... uh this year I had in January taken time to go to my brother's like engagement. 
Mm-hmm. And then the only other vacation I had taken up to a certain point was in like June to go down for the wedding. And it was like way smaller. So it was only like a few of us. Um, and then I hadn't taken any for myself. Like it was like a weekend and, and the only, and I was gone for that weekend. That was like when uh, all the national guard was getting deployed for a bunch of stuff. Um, and so like, I had like two weeks left in my contract and I get called up to go help with like all the police protests and stuff. Um, so they let me go, but like, here I go, I go down to my brother's wedding in the middle of a pandemic in the middle of like all this stuff going on. It was like really stressful. And then I didn't take any time off until like September or October. Cause I was like, I haven't taken a vacation all year, even just to sit here at home and do nothing. Um, and so uh, but that like that that kind of like staved things off kind of like in a temporary sense. And then afterwards, I was like, no, I got to <laughs> I got to like, yo, I got to go stuff. like. <laughs> but but the, but the good thing is that like um, like you're saying, like, oh, the engineering bones on my body, I've got to make something was like kind of like, oh, cool. Like I still like I was like working on like a Git implementation and stuff. And I was like, oh, OK, like I still want to do this stuff, which is good. <laughs> Like, it's not like I'm so thoroughly burnt out on this that I never, ever want to touch a computer again, which is like nice. <laughs> so, yeah. like, it's kind of like it's kind of like, oh, I didn't hate that. I just kind of got stuck in a situation where eh, not the best. But. Yeah, I could definitely tell, like, the last couple, like the last month or so, um, I've been like in my idle free time rather than doing more software stuff. I've been getting more into like electrical engineering stuff and PCB design and things like that. And that's actually felt really refreshing because it's just, I guess it's an area where I don't feel bad if I'm not amazing at it. Cause I'm like, well, I haven't built that many circuit boards. So like, it's just sort right. of fun to play around with stuff and it's still close enough to what I was doing before. So I mostly do embedded stuff, but mostly on the software side. So usually like I read schematics and hardware Mm-hmm. documents and stuff like that but like i'm mostly building software and things like that so it's actually been sort of refreshing to go off and build some hardware because it's just it's different enough that i don't feel bad like it's i'm still learning stuff like every board that i design yeah i'm getting like noticeably better at it you know second third fourth uh circuit board so i'm still in that you haven't like, hit that you haven't hit that intermediate plateau where it's like you you uh i think someone described it when it especially when it comes to like art like you have good taste like you like when you're new you kind of go like oh i think you have like an understanding of like what's good but you don't really like know no and so you like start mm-hmm. to do a bunch of stuff but then you get stuck in this intermediate like plateau where you're like you know enough to know that your stuff and what you're doing sucks but you don't know how to get to the level where it's like good <laughs> So yeah. like you see more of like, oh, here are all the flaws, but it's like, you you don't know where to go next. And so then you start having these like high impossible standards for yourself. So like that, that, that romance period of while you're ramping up, there's like so much to learn that you're like, oh, okay. There's nothing, nothing I got to worry about. Yeah, but then once like you know you start, things, then it's like, mm. it's like when you <laughs> start, start going kicking to the in. gym and everything's brand new, but you're like, oh, you know, I'm my PR increased by 10 pounds this week. And then, oh, 15 pounds next week is still in that stage before you hit like that. Like you said, that happy your muscles are like, <laughs> your yeah. muscles are like, I don't know how to get more bulky unless you start doing like more extreme things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I'm definitely still in that stage, but it's still, you know, it's fun to do. And yeah, it's 
That's it's good. probably what's going to keep me pretty busy over the, the eight weeks or so I have off. I have a couple boards that I've built and haven't played with yet. And then there's a couple other boards. Like one of the things I want to make. Uh, so actually real quick, before I get further, in case I am recording this, so I definitely plan to publish this in some form. Do you want to give yourself a quick introduction for people who may not know who you are? Yeah, uh, so uh, my name is Michael Gatozzi. Uh, I've been using Rust for about like five years plus now because I've been using it since 1.0 came out. Uh, and so primarily I do a lot more like backend web development stuff, but um, I tend to also like make like a lot of like CLI tools and things like that. Um, and so like I, I tend to like various parts of many parts of computing because I always find that there's like usually some part that you can uh, enjoy, but then you can transfer that knowledge in like a different way to a different part of the same field, or at least kind of like some of the lessons learned are the same and the same goes for like listening to like what other fields figure out. Um, hmm. so that's kind of like what I like thinking about and kind of also making sure that like, uh, you know, we build good software for ourselves because we don't. And then it makes me sad. <laughs> this is the <laughs> thing I think about all the time. <laughs> like we're the people who build it and then it makes me sad. Um, but yeah, so uh, that's kind of mostly what I do. Um, and yeah, I hope, hopefully that's good enough introduction for people who don't know me. Works for me. Um, the other major project that I'm working on, I guess the first project that I'm working on is, so for Kuma, my dog, I want to make an LED collar. So basically I want him to have, he has this collar that's LEDs. And it's basically, it's got like, tiny little battery in and it's just like blue leds mm -hmm. or something and it's just like a rubber collar that goes around and we put it on him so when we're taking him on walks at night that if he like ran off we could see him and stuff like that or cars yeah. can see him when we're crossing the road and stuff like that because you know mm -hmm. he's he's a corgi so he's pretty he's low a, to the he's ground <laughs> he's short yeah yeah um but one of the things i want to make is i have these like uh weatherproof controllable i mean we last time you joined me on the video stream we were playing with one of those mm -hmm. like led strips where you can control yeah, colors and stuff like that um so i essentially want like a little box that goes on his collar or sits on his harness and it you plug in the led strip into it so that it like wraps around his neck or wraps around the harness or whatever and it's got a mm -hmm. battery in it and it's got a little radio in it so that i can like send remote commands maybe over bluetooth and get it to like do different colors or change the brightness or change the pattern on it or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe eventually have stuff like when he's moving, it's brighter or something like that. But I want to build yeah, that. Like Taking some like sensor information or something. Yeah. And it's broken down to like all the stuff that I've dealt with over my career because it's going to have like wireless communication. It's going to have mm -hmm. a battery control circuit. It's going to be <clears throat> weather resistant ish in some form or another, because he's low to the ground. And if he splashes in a puddle, I don't want that necessarily to go off. And <laughs> yeah, like, that would not be good. <laughs> no, no. So like I've, I've sort of <clears throat> turned it into a whole thing, <laughs> but sort of a fun <laughs> thing, but it's been one of those projects. That's where how like, everything starts. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's been a real yak shaving process. So like the current state where I'm at is I've designed a battery controller circuit and I'm now at the point where I need to verify my battery <laughs> controller circuit so that I can then design like a board to put the battery controller circuit, the battery and the radio on the board. And then I need to mm -hmm. design a box that can be waterproof that I can also that is also small enough to fit on his hardest. So I've got like mechanical, electrical, and software design all in one, which oh, is fun, fun. But like, 
I need to actually just do it. <laughs> it's the it's the doing it part that's hard. I have lots of great ideas where I'm like, wow, if I just spent like, I don't know, three years of my life working on this, w- things would be so much better. The problem is that it would take three years of my life working on it and I like to eat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially when you're like, well, I have, you know, like two hours a week to work on it. And you're like, well, okay, it will take a while then. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take a bit. <laughs> Yeah. And also, like, running an open source community to, like, get help on things is just, like, so overwhelming. So I'm like, nope, we're going we're gonna to keep it as a private side project for forever. Yeah. Relegated to the dustbin of wherever on my hard drive. I luckily, like, I, I totally understand that mindset. Like, you in particular, I know when you were working on your Git tools, or I believe it was your issue tracking in Git tooling. Um, yeah. Where you're like, I don't, I don't want anyone... To talk to me about this like this is for me and i'm building it and once i've built it other people can use it and that's cool excuse me um yeah i don't mind chucking garbage onto github <laughs> luckily but i guess i embedded is perhaps niche enough that like people like when you're building something that's that's applicable to a lot of people like command line tooling that could help you do issue tracking there's a lot more people that's that that's applicable to when like yeah. i choose a hardware project with a very specific set of hardware that does a very specific set of thing i'm very rarely like, worried about people coming along and being like i need this for my company now why haven't you finished it so like i, I guess why I haven't into those wh- people less often why haven't you supported kuma caller 2.0 yeah yeah why doesn't <laughs> your caller support my favorite protocol and i'm like pull request i don't know welcome. man like <laughs> fork it <laughs> like I've heard, um, I've heard people say that the pull request welcome is the open source version of bless your heart. Yeah, it's, like you, it's you a very up, ni- yeah, it's a very nice way of going. Like, if you, sure, I will accept it, but I'm not doing the work for you. Yeah. So if you want to do that, like, do it, but don't demand my time for free, basically. Which I think is good. Yeah. I think people should get paid. The nice thing about being a consultant is I was like, send an email to my work email. I'll write you a quote. Like, and sometimes people do, and we do cool stuff with them. And sometimes they're like, oh, "Oh, no, but think about how great it would be for the community. And I'm like, well, I, it's like exposure bucks does not feed my dog or me. Sorry. My favorite quote is, don't you know that people die from exposure? (laughs) (laughs) I said that one to Florian, who is not a native English speaker, but he gets a big giggle out of that every time I say it. And he started saying it now, which is excellent. I feel like I heard it from him, but I'm glad that it came from you. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, It never gets old. But yeah, I definitely, I reached out for a specific reason. Um, And that was, so I have, so you're familiar with Saturday. Saturday and Rust is a tool for separating the data definition and the serialization format of that. And the lovely thing Mm -hmm. about that is you can write serializers that are friendly for different use cases. So I've written a serializer format called postcard, which is a embedded friendly format. It's very similar to bin code. So if you've ever used bin like Saturday bin code, it's almost the same as that. It's got a couple different tweaks and also Mm -hmm. like the API is a little bit more friendly to embedded folks, but basically it's simplified it. Yeah, it's basically like, okay, you put things on the wire in little endian format with no padding between items and 
the, really the only difference with bin code is for enum variants and lengths of slices, it uses varints instead of just like a U32 or a U64 or something like that. So that like, yeah, one, you don't have to worry about whether your platform is 64 bit or 32 bit, because when it's a varint, doesn't matter. Who cares? Uh, <laughs> and if you have an enum with five variants, then you're not sending four bytes of nothing over the wire you only have right. you know one byte in most cases which is nice for embedded yeah. systems yeah but one thing that postcard totally punts on and by definition all of the other libraries that i have that are built <coughs> on top of postcard is Serde has no built-in concept of versioning it's got a couple things no. you can do like it, it you can throw it like an enum and it will try and figure out which variant of the enum it is so you could say like i have different formats that are different enum variants <clears throat> where we have like one top level enum that's like a struct that's version one two three four five and mm -hmm. you could do that um or you could like include a version field in all of your messages or something like that but yep yeah a lot of the times it's, especially it's... for hobby stuff it's not a problem because i just recompile everything and it's fine but if I like yeah. if I'm building one project one month and another project the next month and another project the next month and another project the next month and I have like one PC application that's supposed to talk to all four of these embedded systems how do I keep like the PC that. up to date when I've got like n maybe four different deployments of these devices at the same time yeah. without bloating the code because these are little embedded systems so ideally they should only deserialize or serialize stuff they care about. And mm -hmm. how do I do this in a backwards <clears throat> compatible way? So if I have something that is deployed later, it can still talk to at least the subset of the communication protocol that the older devices have there. And you mentioned on Twitter, yeah. like I do this a lot on for, especially for my at work job. So I'm, yeah. I've always wanted to support multiple versions or some kind of backwards compatibility in my binary protocol. And specifically, PostGuard is not a protocol that encodes its schema over the wire. It's expected that both communicators have a matching preconceived <coughs> notion of what this protocol is. And that's how they send such compact messages is they just pre-negotiate at compile time what they're sending. So the question is, right. how do I, in a reasonably portable and efficient and not painful way build libraries on top of something like postcard or how do i encode this into postcard or the library that sits on top of postcard that says okay there's some toolkit that allows you to more reasonably <clears throat> have versioning as a first class feature of of a serialization and deserialization protocol yeah so uh to give you some context about the stuff that i deal with at work or at least did for quite some time um I kind of moved to a different team uh was it had to do a lot with configuration and so pretty much it's the same principle of there is input from somewhere that changes the behavior of how the program works it it this this is this is why i was talking about like things are applicable in pretty much any way uh it's just yeah. a, it's just a, where the source came from is a little bit different right um and so you know we would have to deal with things like schemas and like okay like is this config conformant to the schema um so there was there was a lot of stuff that we did to kind of make sure that like if we built uh if if we deployed this version of the code that the um configs at that vert or we we separated so that you could have 
configs separate from a commit on the code. So they were like split into two repos. So you can have configs at like any version and you can have the code at any version. And so you had to deal with things like, okay, forwards compatibility. And what do I do if there are fields added and I can't handle, like, how do I handle them? Um, so generally speaking, if when you, when you deal with changing your schema, you want to think about kind of forwards compatibility. So this is kind of like uh, like what Rust does, right? Like, okay, like we can make changes, but they have to be forwards compatible. And so usually this is uh, in the case of like, oh, I want to add a new field to this thing that gets deserialized. That new field should be optional, right? Like you shouldn't assume it will be there because older versions do not have that field. And so what do you do in the absence of that field, uh, right? So that's so that's kind of like one thing that you could do, right? So instead of, instead of having multiple versions of my struct or config, you say, I'm adding new fields or things like this um, <clears throat> to deal with it, right? So now you don't have a version, you have just various, uh, various, uh, so you, you get the benefits of future code can understand the new stuff that might get passed to it. And old code just doesn't have it and can kind of safely ignore it. A lot of, I think a lot of what Saturday does is like, if it doesn't have the field, it will just ignore it. I think is the default. Um, you might this have to like dig those, into the docs for that one. This is one of those interesting things that it's also a differentiation between, I don't know what the actual <laughs> title of them is, but when you have binary versus non-binary formats, um, for example, if you didn't build in the concept of an... So, on a text format, if you didn't have a key, let's say, like, uh, a speed or something like that, mm -hmm. if you don't see the key at all in the input, you can assume that that item is not there. But in a binary format, at least the def default way that Saturday would handle this is it always expects that field to be there. And if you had an option, for example, it would just have a zero byte on the wire at least this is how postcard works mm. if you had an option that was a sum you'd have like a one byte followed by the data otherwise you would have a zero byte and then you'd go to the next field there where this is one of those things where like jason and tommel can omit they have a concept of the difference between the key is not there and the value is none you know what i mean and this is kind of one of those yeah there's common, there's like, like a things. sense of there's a sense of it doesn't exist, but yep. for a binary protocol, it's like it either has to exist or it's a failure, essentially. Like yep. you have to you have to encode nullability into it, essentially. Yeah, which yeah, is one so of the challenging things of, of delivering a, a binary format is you can't change that necessarily. Like if you start sending okay, a new so value that has that there, it's just going to start interpreting the next byte on the wire is the next field that it knew about. You might be able to yeah, add fields because it will stop deserializing when it has gotten mm -hmm. all the data that it cares about. So that's still a possibility as long as you're adding stuff on the end of the binary format. Yeah, there's... Serday also has this idea of flattening. Mm. So um, one thing that we've done, I don't know, this might be applicable to a binary if you consider it like stuck at like any extra stuff at the very end kind of gets slapped into this. So you could do this thing. So uh, with flattening, for instance, um, you can say, okay, here are my named fields. 
and then everything else is a hash map of string to string for JSON. And so what mm. Flatten will do is like as if it will take basically anything else that it's given and then put it into a hash map. So if you, in JSON, if you had your string and your string, it would just take all that stuff on the left side and then just put it in there. And flatten works for also named structs as well. So like things, so instead of having like a sub object with this field, it would just count, it would basically go, all the fields that would be in the sub object are actually just part of that top level. Uh, and that when I deserialize it, I will put it into like an actual like struct of sorts. But that way you don't have to have like a named field, sub sub fields and some other stuff. So flatten... Flatten is nice, and so you could probably do something where you would flatten the rest of uh, of the protocol into some structure of sorts to like handle the fact that like I might get extra stuff, but I'm an old bit of code, so I don't know what that is, and so it can kind of just like it'll hold it, it'll deserialize it, but it's just like it's just like there, and you could maybe do something with it, um, or um, but like newer code, you could have that be like named fields for like, oh, this is this thing or that thing. And then you could still have the rest flatten it for like newer versions past that that wouldn't have it. Yeah. Um, Here we actually don't have any concept of names because it's it's a totally like there is no key, if that makes <clears throat> sense. So like when we're serializing, right. like postcards, a very compact format. So it actually encodes no information about, for example, if you had a struct, it, it doesn't know what the name of the field is because it just knows okay, if I have a U32, a U64, and then a bool, it just on the wire is going to look for four bytes, eight bytes, one byte. Um, and it just and goes like, it, it and like the struct, like are the struct like name fields in Rust like in an order. And so it just goes like, this is how I figure out which one it goes into. Yeah, so Saturday yeah. by default iter <clears throat> or iterates through struct fields recursively in order top to bottom. So if you had a struct inside of a struct, mm -hmm. it would start at the top level struct, whatever oh, item is there. And then if the, the second struct was the next item, then it would do the first field of the second struct, then down, 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 pop back to the first struct. So it's essentially like more or less how you would lay it out in memory without padding yeah. and alignment, more or less. Yeah, like you're, you're, you can, it's basically like a flattened version of the struct, yeah. essentially. Exactly. If, and then conceptually, it's this more recursive yeah. kind of like thing of the code. Things like protobufs, I think they get around this by having an index for each name of the field. So like they will, before each field, they'll say like one, then the data, then two, then the data. And then you know, if you then skip to four, then that means that three field isn't present. I, I think it's been a while since I've looked at the protobuf format. Yeah. But I think this can also get into tricky things where protobuf can be a conceptually harder thing to deserialize because i think in some cases especially for repeated fields and yeah. maybe optional fields you you end up having to do two passes to parse it correctly because you don't know yeah. what is there and isn't there until after I, there's something i uh, someone's probably going to correct me on the internet on this but there is probably there are at least <laughs> some cases that require and this is why protobuf can sometimes be slower than something like serde with bin code or or postcard mm -hmm. because because postcard is a straight linear almost non-branching like you either do have all the data or you don't whereas with with protobuf you might have to hop around to figure out because i think they also don't require that the fields are strictly in order i think that might be it is that they don't require yeah. those fields are strictly in order so you could hop around and figure out like do i have all of my fields or not by the end of it yeah but I think I think if you say if you say all my fields must be in order, 
then you can still do this thing where you could basically essentially cut off the rest of the message in the way that you deserialize it because you're like, okay, I know I have all this stuff, but I don't know what the rest of this is. Yeah. Um, and I can't know what the rest of this is. And so you could have it where you just ignore it or you could do something where it gets put into something to kind of, you still get it, but like your code doesn't do anything with it. Mm. Um, because I, I, I think the fact that you say that your thing is in order is in it of itself a strength because then that means yeah. that um, so then, so then things like moving, which like the order of the fields in your struct would be a breaking change. So you yes. should only be adding things to the very end of it. And you can always extend something down further. This is kind of like also why non-exhaustive enums exist, mm. um, in Rust, because you basically can say, <clears throat> here are my values for the enum, but this is not exactly like the full list of things. And so what this yeah. forces your code to also do is then say, what about the use case where I have some value here that I don't know what it is. Yeah. And so you should then be able to deserialize essentially non-exhaustive. You could then add fields to your non-exhaustive enum, but your old code has handled that use case because you've tagged that, like I might add more things to this in the future, right? So this is another way that you can kind of like future-proof things, uh, I think, is that you can utilize this idea of non-exhaustive enums, at least for those kinds of fields. Um, and you're talking about binary protocols. So it reminds me, so at work, we do a lot of healthcare stuff and there's this old wire protocol from the eighties that was designed for specifically mainframes in a hospital to talk to each other called HL7 V2. There is an okay. HL7 V3, but they went overboard with the XML and no one liked it. And so then they mm. didn't, no one uses it. And, and you have to deal with like a lot of problems with this protocol, particularly like, oh, they added an optional message number field later like oh this is message five or six uh because you have to process things in order all the time because what could happen is like what happens if you like do what if you say a patient is dead first and then you say that you've released the patient from the hospital but the order is supposed to be they got released and then they died it would look really weird in the, in the records if like they happened out of order but they realized this too late after they had standardized the protocol. And so then they added, so they had to add it as an optional field. Otherwise it's a breaking change. Um, but, um, but like pretty much any time like that, like there's just a set number of segments and it basically uses like the little pipe or operator essentially. And if there's nothing in it, then you just assume that the segment is empty. And then if there is stuff inside of it, then you can act on that. Um, for a lot of things. So there is a concept of nullability, and, but you add stuff to basically say like, there's nothing here. Um, so you, you end up having a little bit more size on the wire to encode that concept. Um, but it that's another kind of thing that you could utilize where you go like, okay, well, like there might be a segment here. There might not be uh, like, but you can act on that. So you could, you could encode optional optionality into your protocol somehow uh which would be another way uh but that that again that costs bits on the wire so i don't it, it depending on like is this fast or slow like that kind of depends on what you're doing um yeah so i should probably zoom out and give you an idea so for uh, actually it's it's just a habit of mine so i do this in a bunch of projects where when i have multiple devices like whether it's a let's say like a really common pattern for me is I have a, a desktop 
computer or a server or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. And then I'll typically have a radio attached to the computer and that's acting sort of like a modem. So it's talking to the rest of the devices. And then let's say mm -hmm. I have three wireless devices out on the network. So I've got maybe like a temperature sensor, uh, some lights that I can control and a motion sensor in my house or something like that. So I've mm -hmm. got my, I've got some kind of rust application running on my server that's usually talking to the internet or, or doing something or showing graphs or whatever. Um, and it talks directly to the over USB to the radio that I've attached there, which is acting like a custom modem. And then mm -hmm. that modem is in charge of talking to the three other devices and relaying that information back. So this is like a okay. really common pattern for what I do. And because I'm really lazy and I don't like writing my own serialization and deserialization code, usually what I do is I just split out one crate that I, I usually call it an ICD, which is a term from the avionics industry, but it stands for interface control document. Um, and it's mm -hmm. basically like the protocol spec. Um, yeah, it's your schema, essentially. It's Yeah, it's exactly. Yeah, it's a schema. But what I usually do is because I'm using Serday and Postcard, I just make it a no standard crate that just has all of the data types defined in it. And then mm -hmm. in each of the five different projects, so the PC, the modem, and then the three embedded devices, they all include the same crate at the same version. And once I've done that, and they're all using Serday on both sides of the wire, then all of my protocol is done because they're all compiled using the same code. And because it's an embedded friendly format, it doesn't matter whether I'm running out on a PC or not. It actually doesn't even matter what medium I'm going over. Like I can mm -hmm. encode the same data, even slightly different encode it because postcard lets you do a couple different formats that are better for like a serial port versus a packet radio. Um, it allows you to tweak mm -hmm. a couple serialization and deserialization formats that, that lets you do that. So like, you don't really have to care about it at that point. But the, the question is like, okay, I've, I've delivered those three devices and now I want to add a fourth device. And this means at least updating the PC that's going to know about that fourth device and writing the code for the fourth device. Um, gotcha. Really, I don't okay. want to ha have to recompile. And the modem may not have to know about these differences if it's just relaying the information on. So it may just be looking at like, depending on how many layers I have in my protocol, I may just have like a you know, a blind bag of bytes that have like an outer header around them. So I may mm -hmm. not even have to update the modem code, for example, because um, it's just going to pass on the bag of bytes up to the PC or something like that. But ideally, I'd like to not have to go and reflash all the other three devices. Um, but the question is, okay. how do I make sure that I haven't done it wrong in some way? Yeah, okay. So in this case... um. Do the devices also talk to each other or do they only talk with like your computer through the modem and then it just, it does stuff and then sends commands back to it to do things or like, the do they is, need to talk to each other? It depends. In the exact one that I'm talking about right now, they don't talk to each other, but I have another project that has a very similar layout, but they do talk to each other. So they actually talk to the modem, which will bounce messages back and forth between the two of them um, and sort of okay. like proxy that. So. Let's say in the worst case, so, they do talk to each other. Yeah. So then I think there, I think you can do something about this actually. And I think that this is a, this is a use case where you actually would want to version um, your message. And so if you just put like a small little bite at the very beginning of your message, that's just like the value, the version that you're using in every single message for forever, then 
uh, from there, you can kind of like work with it. So you can say like, oh, I'm on an older one and I get a V2 message, but I only speak V1, then you could just ignore it, right? Like, so that way, like, it's just like, I don't know what this is. I can't do anything about it. Um, then and so the question I do- is whether I do that in band with Serdey, because Serdey will let you essentially do that by wrapping each version one, version two, version three in an enum. So if my top level structure is always an enum, that is version mm-hmm. one, version two, version three, version four. I can do that because if if I've compiled it up to version three, so my discriminant on my enum is valid zero, three. one, or two, basically. And then if yeah. someone gets a newer message and they say the discriminant is five, then you go, I, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that is. Say, like, or, you, or, you, or, or you could even do something where you can use the non-exhaustive enum possibly. Oh, where you could, so you can use the non-exhaustive and then you can then say... You could have a way where you communicate back to the person who sent you that message. I don't know what that means. I here are here's what I speak. Yeah. Send me back something that's in that. So you could have like this retry mechanism that you can build in where you go like, oh, I tried sending it at this, it didn't know it, or um, or when it when the first time it communicates with them, they you set up a table in each of the devices where it knows this speaks that version, this speaks this version, whatever else. And then you can then send messages. Oh, I'm routing to this device, a message. I need to send it in this format to it. Um, And so, so this, this kind of goes with the, it's the adage. um, What is it? Uh, Be liberal in what you accept, but conservative in what you send. And like, it's this is kind of what it means this is like the essence of what it is is like okay like i should be able to accept a variety of input and at least do something with it but i should be very careful in what i send to other things um the nice thing is that you control this whole network and system and you're not really like worried about like oh what other changes people are making you don't have to worry about like oh they're adding fields they're doing this like you have control over the whole system which greatly simplifies a bunch of things because now you don't have like human dynamics in it it's just you um because like at an organization it's easy for people to like make breaking changes without thinking about it or like whatever else and it it's caused problems (laughs) is is, uh the thing um but i think with versioning what you can do is that you can your computer can always have the greatest most recent superset Mm. of everything and a computer has also a lot more power. So you should be able to at least in that keep some kind of table where you can, you know, route messages in such a way that you can say like, oh, okay, I know this one only speaks this or this one speaks that. Um, and, and having a way to dynamically figure it out would be good because then, because if you had to like statically put it in, I think you kind of really limit what you can do. You're like, oh, I can't just throw another thing onto the bus and it sends out some like kind of art message where it's like, I'm here. Yeah. Here's what I speak. And then everyone like updates their tables kind of just like, you know, like a network essentially, right? You you throw you throw something onto your network and it goes, uh, I here's my address. What does everyone else speak? And it knows how to like route stuff to things in its subnet. You kind of would probably want to do something similar in that sense because then you can just throw whatever devices on you want. You could take things off, like that kind of thing. Um, and I think that would that would kind of simplify stuff in many ways because then you don't have to worry about this like the statically setting things up and then kind of making it hard to like take things down. Now all of a sudden your computer's like 
where where is this device? I don't know what to do, kind of thing. Um, yeah. But I think I think I think in your case, if you if your very first bit in your protocol is the version, that can then determine should I even deserialize the rest of it, or should I just ignore this and then immediately send something back that says send it in a different way. Um, and so you could have it such that your your sending logic waits for a response of I got it, or um, try again with a different version. Mm. Um, and so if you have that kind of retry logic built in, like it might end up using some more bandwidth. So that might be something that you might not want to do, but you could at least make sure that whatever is sending things is always sending it at least in a version that it can speak. And because you're versioning it and it's like one zero, one, two, three, four, later versions know about the previous versions. So you could write some logic in there to like deal with that. Like, oh, these fields exist in this one or this one doesn't or whatever you want to do. Um, and so they should be able to handle old stuff that gets sent to them. And then they should also then be able to handle sending new or whatever else. And I think, I really think versioning is probably one of the better ones that you can do in this case, where it's just like one small bit at the very beginning. Like you don't even need to do, like I don't expect you to have like 155 or like 255 like separate things. You could probably use like a U4 or something get like 128 um, yeah i haven't gotten into like bit packing for postcard yet so it it, it only thinks at the byte level so okay so smart the, enough so to even, reduce so an enum down to one byte if if there's only a max of one variant but oh so then yeah like just just put a byte and i think that should handle a lot of your versioning cases and then if you and then and then if you get to a point where you have like 255 versions then you're kind of stuck with uh you have to then do a breaking change not necessarily because have... postcard uses a varint. So basically... oh, so you can have a variable length of bytes yeah. and so on you, every you're message. not constrained so, to that. Exactly. So if you send, oh, okay. if you send, that's a good, var- that's a good decision. Yeah. Variant one, that's always a one byte message. But if you're ever sending variant 130, cause it's past the 127, seven bit length, that's right. always going to be two bytes to encode that version, but that will get you up to, uh, uh, what is it? 32,000. So as long as you have less than yeah. 32,000 variants, then it's going to be two bytes. And then once you start sending the 40,000th variant, in which case my code is pro- probably no, like my, just my deserialization code is no longer going to fit on my microcontroller. If it knows how to deserialize 40,000 different variants of messages. Like, yeah. But, um, but, but by, but by nature of like, if I compile an Eno with this many variants, it then knows like, Oh, this, I need this amount of bytes at max to determine that. Yeah, it's, it's all at runtime because it knows it. whenever I send the number between zero and 127 inclusive, that's one byte on the wire. And because like, I don't know if you're familiar with varints or LEB64, I'm using the same encoding, but essentially the encoding that I'm using for postcard, you look at the top bit of the byte. And if mm-hmm. it's a zero, it's the last byte in the sequence. If it's a one, that means it is not the last bit in, or is not the last byte in the sequence. So basically yeah. when you're decoding it, you can always just keep going. And for example, on a, if you try and send bigger than a U32 over the, the wire, well, I'm kind of confusing this, but yeah, basically like you, 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 you know, based off of, based off of a certain bit in the byte, you know, if there's more for it to look at or there's, yeah. or that's it. It's kind of like, yeah. it's like UTF-8 encoding where it's like, Oh, like yeah. this is, oh, we know that this is a one byte 
variant of UTF-8 or, oh, this is a multi-byte step yeah. and there's like a way to like figure that out and it has to do with like which bits are set specifically. So it's kind of like exactly. a similar concept, I'm guessing. Yeah, very similar. And it's exactly what Protobuf does. I basically stole, I learned Protobuf's encoding at some point because I was doing Protobuf on yeah. microcontrollers and there's like really learned there. the encoding. <laughs> so like kind of stuck with that. But yeah, at some point I might switch to, there's another really good encoding that Tony Arcieri has written for part of I think mm -hmm. the library is called Veriform, where he has something called yeah. Vint64, where it's actually a little bit more efficient. Because if you notice, like when you slice the top bit out of everything, um, you've got seven bits per item. And you also don't know ahead of time of how many bytes you will be decoding. So what Correct. his does is, and I, it's some technique from somewhere else. I don't know where it's from, but like what uh, Vint64 does is it does that all in the top byte. So basically it looks at the number of leading zeros yeah. before the first one. So if the first byte is all zeros, you know it is an eight byte message. So the following eight bytes are just going to be a regular U64. Oh, uh, so but it uses it, it uses the number of bits to determine how many bytes follow it. Yes, but it's also smart enough where if it says that uh, if you have something like zero one, it knows it's going to be two bytes, but then the remaining six bits in the top byte are data. So like it, it, you essentially get six gotcha. bits from the first byte and then eight bits from the second byte. And it's actually more efficient because using like the protobuf style one to get a U64 would actually take 10 bytes because you've shaved one bit off of each byte. Yep. So it'll take uh, 10 bytes to go on the wire. Um, but Vint64 only takes one header byte to do eight bytes of data. So it's actually so like you, a little you bit You probably more cut efficient. off an extra byte. You probably cut off like an extra byte, maybe two, if you're like kind of lucky in order to... Yeah. So it's a little bit more compact, but you kind of get the same effect. The, the other thing is it's also not as branchy in the code because you know, oh, you okay, know, yeah. after the first byte, you know how many more bytes you're going to have to process. So you have like one branch there and then you just say like, okay, there better be four more bytes in the queue. And if there's not four bytes, then you go, nope, badly We're encoded. Done. So like, it's also yeah. theoretically, I think he's done some benchmarking on it. I think it's technically more efficient as well because it's less branchy of code. Because you're yeah, not you're checking like, you're in not... every byte whether to continue or not. Yeah, so you, you could basically just like make some assumptions, go through it, and then if it at some point those assumptions don't hold, you can just say, well, the encoding's bad, and so I'm not going to do anything about this and just ignore it or whatever else. And, and because it's just checking leading zeros, most CPUs have an instruction for how many leading zeros are there in this byte. Um, Rust has like an intrinsic on that as well. So like literally it's usually one instruction to just say how many do i have and then that goes into a match statement um and, then, and you can have every arm finished so like it yeah. basically becomes like a lookup table of how many leading bytes you have to how many or it's exactly the number like it's how many leading bytes yeah it's have. like it, it basically becomes like a check and jump instruction where it just goes like oh like okay like get the number put it in the register and then jump that many instructions ahead to like wherever you don't even have that to do that, really, because if you have zero leading bytes or zero, just... zero leading zeros, you're going to have mm -hmm. one byte. So I guess it's just like add one to the number of leading zeros, and that's how many bytes you're going to take. Yeah. 
yeah that's i think it's, it's even, like super simple yeah yeah it's it's when i saw that i was like oh that's that's way more clever like so i've actually like, i've started using that for bbq so another one of my libraries, mm-hmm. I use that for encoding lengths compactly, but I haven't switched postcard over to doing that versus I have like a hand rolled varint implementation there. Yeah, which, which works. Over. Yeah. All right. But yeah, that'd be, that, that'd be good too. Okay, cool. Yeah. So you kind of, you've built in a way to kind of avoid the other pitfall of things, which is what happens when, like, how do you deal with data types that sort of change or could be longer in lengths or you kind of like go over a certain number like how do you deal with that and like by making everything like a var whatever you've kind of dealt with like that whole thing which is good and the strings could be any length so it's not like that data type is not gonna be messed up or anything like that um well because strings and vex both get encoded as length data um so like length and byte and data and the length and bytes is also a varint which means if you have a string that's just 16 characters you get one byte of length that's 16, and then you get 16 bytes that should be UTF-8 code points and things like that. So it's pretty compact for be. most of that. Yeah. Uh, oh, that was that was a whole Wait. Twitter thread this week of like... I, I was I was UB? very much in the... I was in the middle of it. I started it. I was, I, was, I was the fool who did it because I was like, I don't understand what they mean by its undefined behavior. And it was like, it took me forever, but the... The, the end result was the compiler can't assume while it's making code that an str has valid utf8 bytes yeah. but me as the user can assume, assume an str an anster and a string have utf8 compliant bytes in it and Unless, obviously, of course, the big asterisk always is someone uses unsafe to mess with it, but that's kind of their fault. Yeah. But that that was that was what I wanted to understand, and then everyone kept telling me things about other stuff, and I'm like, no, I don't care. I want to know. Does this? I'm thinking. I was thinking it made UTF-8. Like, I can't guarantee that if I have a stir that it has UTF-8 bytes. And they're like, no, yeah. no, no, no. The compiler can't assume that it has valid UTF-8 bytes while it generates code. And I was like, yeah, cool. Thanks. Yeah, <laughs> Just, it's, that took that's, forever. <laughs> that's, the, that's what I distilled out of it too, is that they changed it from being both the compiler and the user at runtime must assume that every uh, stir is a valid UTF-8 code point sequence. And they changed it from that has to be true at compile and runtime to it's only it can only cause problems at runtime, basically. Yeah. Yeah. If you if you ever observe a stir that does not have valid UTF eight code points, nasal demons are allowed. Like but at compile time you can never have that. Yes, defined undefined behavior. Or like essentially the 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 compiler can't generate code that can't it's generate optimizations. Invariant. It's a runtime yeah, it, invariant, not a compile time invariant. Yeah, the way uh, Alex put it was uh, before before the contract upholder was Rust C, and now it's libcore. Mm, that's a good way to put it. And I was like, oh, okay, this makes more sense. But, yeah, because there's a couple uh, people, things. People, <laughs> go ahead. People have a hard time explaining things to me when it comes to like undefined behavior. And it's just like, it's just like one of these like very pedantic points that only a PL person would really care about. It was just really poorly communicated. That's all. 
Yeah, Rust still has a couple of those where we're shaking that out. I mean, like the the one that is most applicable to embedded. Well, I, there's a couple. Like embedded is nice. Well, embedded is funny because it you sort of have to push the boundaries of what is specified and not because the hardware is allowed to do weird things. So like the one that I that I can think of is is there's actually no blessed way in Rust to do memory mapped IO. So for example like um in I think we talked about this on our other stream but like the way you set up a serial port on an embedded system is there's just a specific address where you either like read configuration data from or write configuration data to. And that actually mm -hmm. impactfully changes what the hardware does, um, changing the like speed that it sends data or whether it is sending data or whether it should stop sending data mm -hmm. or something like that. Um, and right now we use this kind of, we have a library that wraps around an unsafe cell that dereferences an arbitrary pointer value um, in a volatile kind of way because the hardware can also change like status bits at any time, like outside of the flow of the program. So right now we essentially just have an unsafe cell that does a volatile read or write to any of these arbitrary memory locations. And that's what we've sort of like settled on is the way that in Rust, how we interact with those like raw memory addresses. And that's, more broadly called memory mapped IO because it's not just hardware. It's also or it's not just embedded. It's also applicable to like if your desktop is doing DMA or if you're writing to certain like configuration registers or stuff like that. The the broad topic is memory mapped IO. Um, so this th this would also be like oh writing to like the VGA buffer yeah, data to like, yeah, yeah. display on the computer. Okay, so it's like there's a certain place of memory that if I write data there, stuff happens somewhere else. Gotcha. The thing we've actually run into is theoretically it's possible to invoke UB doing this, or, or you can have negative side effects is actually the more, uh, the more pressing problem because in rust, if you ever have a reference, the compiler is allowed to insert as many reads to that register as it would like, it like you can reorder okay. stuff and it can decide to dereference that memory at any time when it feels like it, even if uh. you haven't hit the line of code. So it may decide to like move a read up to the top of the function to do that. If you have a reference, Rust is allowed to dereference your reference, whatever Rust C is allowed to do that wherever it would like. The problem is in some hardware, reads are side effectful. So a very common pattern is you might have Ooh. like an error flag on the serial port. And something like reading the status register of the serial port clears the error bit. Because they said once you've read it, instead of making you like read it and then clear a bit, oh, why wouldn't you want to save one instruction? And instead, when you read it, I will gotcha. clear that bit. Which means if you were doing this, and actually even more commonly on interrupts, for example, in some hardware, reading the interrupt flag will clear the interrupt flag. Which means if you've inserted a spurious read, but the code never actually got to the point where it considered that value, mm -hmm. it may have cleared an interrupt flag or an error flag or something like that and moved on. And right now, as far as we know, nothing in LLVM or Rust-C will technically ever do that. Do but that. they still mark there's an LLVM attribute called dereferenceable. That theoretically we should have like another version of unsafe cell that is like, non-dereferenceable unsafe cell, which we really should be using for volatile operations because it upholds those contracts. But that also like inhibits a lot of optimizations, I think. Um, right.
Because what I th- wasn't wasn't the point of like a volatile reader or volatile write versus like a normal pointer reader pointer write to say like this has some side effect possibly so don't optimize around it. Um, oh, I have to. Or my under or my misunderstanding how volatile works. Volatile <laughs> means that, as specified, reads and writes cannot be elided. So if you have three okay. reads to the register the compiler can't collapse those into a single read that it uses as a cached value that it will It has to do every single one. It has to do every one. Okay. Um, But the order that it happens in is not necessarily I think it is specified to be in order as well. Like if you do a volatile, volatile, volatile to three different registers, it has to retain that in order. I'm trying to remember what the case is where there's some case where... The ordering of those three could be anywhere. Like it still has to be in that order, but like they're not required to be next to each other in that order that you wrote it in the code. Is that the problem? Kind of... The problem that we're running into is the difference between at least once semantics and exactly once semantics. Yeah. So it has to do them in these order, and it's not allowed to get rid of any of those. I think the quality that we are looking for is it must do only those in that order. So theoretically, if we have like register one, two, and three that we're reading from in order, theoretically volatile semantics say you must read one, two, three. So just two, three is not acceptable. Two, one, three is not acceptable. But I think the problem that we're running into is technically if you did one, 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 two, three, I believe that is acceptable in the semantics of volatile but would be unacceptable in the real world application of our hardware. And it's not every register that has side effects. It's it's still kind of weird it's in embedded systems, but it's not unheard of. Yeah, it's rare, right. but and not so, unheard of. And so, you, it, so in the cases where it does matter, you're like checking the assembly dump output so you can make sure that, that the bad thing that you don't want to happen ha- doesn't happen. Yeah. Whereas, whereas like, oh, I can encode this in my language and then I know for a fact that when I compile this, I don't have to go worry about it and that the compiler is going to go do things to optimize stuff and then I'm going to be sad when my code doesn't do what I expect it to do. Yeah. And the other one that we run into is, do you know what CRT zero is in C or what like the startup, like life before main? Do you, do you know generally what goes on before main in C or Rust? I know. Oh, I did it for Rust. I wrote a whole, oh, right, <laughs> I wrote right. a whole yeah. article well, about that. I don't you... know about C, but I do know that everyone thinks that C doesn't have a virtual machine and that they're lying to themselves. But <laughs> well, these are two different things. Yeah, C has both a virtual machine that exists at compile time and a runtime which exists at runtime. And Rust so basically CR... has the same. So CRT zero is like C runtime zero or something. Yeah, exactly. It's it's basically the first code that's supposed to be linked in, and and I think even in your domain because you were running on a PC, the operating system still handles that for you. Essentially, what it does is it like it sets up the memory basically. Like it zeroes out certain yeah. areas. It copies like for zero initialized statics, it zeroes those to zero, and then for value setup uh statics it copies those from the program to ram as like the initial values that's that's basically all it has to do is it has to do those two things yeah there's also some stack guard memory stuff that uh the operating systems will do that they'll do one of my favorite bits though in the in the rust runtime code for this and i loved i found this i just love it is that 
there on the Windows computer, there's a certain um, library function that they'll call to like do the stack guard and kind of set everything up. Um, and it says, um, and like, oh, and if it errors, like do something about it. Um, but <laughs> it says, this is, so someone left a comment, it's like, this instruction doesn't exist on Windows XP. So just run the rest of this code and hope nothing bad happens. <laughs> <laughs> Backwards compatible. <laughs> It's like it's like it's like it's out of my hands. I don't know yeah. what else to do here. Just kind of run it and go. <laughs> Just, oh, yeah. oh, it's wonderful. My startup code rant is though: is it valid to write Rust to initialize a Rust program, but have those be compiled together as one compilation unit? Because if uh, you okay. are required to set up memory before you run Rust code, can you use that Rust code to set up the memory? Yeah. And so now, so now you're kind of in this like chicken or egg problem and you're kind of like, and, and this is where you start splitting semantic yeah, hairs on like, exactly. Does this matter? And it's like, for most people, that's like an implementation detail where they're like, as long as it gets set up, I don't care. But like, in some cases you have to care where it gets set up. We found that we, we do it in Rust as like just a library. So it gets compiled together with all the other code. The answer is it is UB but not in the way that we've been, or that it is UB, but the UB doesn't get invoked in the specific way that we're using it right now. So at some point, we're probably gonna have to switch to switching that assembly code to one of two things, either as like a blind static library, so that the compiler mm -hmm. doesn't know that these are the same items, or we'll just have to rewrite that startup code in assembly, because assembly has no preconceived notions of like what the memory should be before you run. But someone noticed that if you take that code, that startup code, instead of it being in a different crate, if it's just like in the same file, like if you were to manually inline it all into one file, so you have your startup code and your main in the same file, mm -hmm. undefined behavior will probably happen. Like you will get just like garbage. But because we have them as separate crates and they get linked together, it's enough of a separation where the compiler like, I guess doesn't notice that there's UB to exploit there. So we'll have to fix that at some point. Yeah. But it, we realized it, like, I don't think this is a like, you don't thing. have link time optimization turned on so that it could kind of go like, how do I, how do I, how do I get this even more compact or whatever across? The answer is throw away stuff. all the startup code. Look how compact it is. Like <laughs> I, got, I got rid of stuff you don't need. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, do you can you, do you can like you, this can, like do you yeah it's like writing writing on it's like uh i got rid of so much code do you like this because it's too yeah. hard to write it's too hard to generate code that does exactly what you want i've produced a zero byte executable for you do you like this like <laughs> it's super fast it doesn't even run exactly uh, but yeah these are the fun things but yeah i think now now my longer term question is going to be how much of the, so I, I agree with you that like having versioning and requiring versioning, at least on the top layer of probably each top level message. So I'll probably have one enum that is the protocol. And essentially that's mm -hmm. like just the version wrapper. And then each, at least each top level field, like temperature values or this kind of command or this kind of whatever, um, those will probably need to be enums as well. So for example, right. like report temperature or set command or whatever. Um, I'll probably need a top level enum for all of those. And then the question is how much of that can I enforce at compile time? And how much of that can I enforce as generatable tests and things like that? Because 
I guess for my own project, I can just say like, you know, handshake agreement. These are the rules. And in the crate, I can just be really careful that I try to never mess that up. But the question is like, what if I have a bad day or I put in some hack on one day and I want to make sure that that never gets merged into the main branch? How do I enforce that I always have that structure? And then maybe even going one step further in terms of checking that I never modify some structure in a backwards incompatible way where I say like, yep, that. And I, I the answer is I may not be able to do that sanely with Saturday without like a really heavy proc macro that also walks down the fields like Saturday walks down the fields and, and oh, so, does that. So what, so what we did was that um, uh, essentially we would have all of the, we basically had a program that would load all the configuration and do some other stuff. Um, but we basically wrote a regression test that would, load every possible version of the configurations that we had already existing and then it would just deserialize them mm. and if it could if it could deserialize them then the message is still valid because gotcha. it's um it's if Saturday can handle it then it means Saturday can handle it right so what you could do is write a whole load of test cases of just like you know put put, put some file in there with all the bytes in it for like a message right um, Ooh, and then I wonder if I can combine that with the non-exhaustive thing where if it's a non-exhaustive, well, no, cause that's never mind. So I was going to be, I was really excited. Cause I was like, what if I just put the length of bytes of the message in the unsupported field so that like, if mm -hmm. it doesn't know it, but the serializer that's sending a V3 message is going to know what it is. So it's not just going to put the bytes in there. It's going to encode the message as it really is, which doesn't help you if you're receiving it on a V2 device. But I guess the yeah. answer is maybe I just need to start putting like the length of each subfield in every field. So like it always knows how much to skip over if it's not deserializing that. Sorry, I cut you yeah. off. Yeah. I thought I was I thought no, I'd onto something I mean, amazing, but I mean, but that's something that you could do is that you feel like uh that that's another thing where like instead of doing versioning, you could say, like, I don't really know how to deserialize this field. Can I just skip over it? Yeah. Um and so you could do that as an example of where you're just adding these optional fields and you have this idea of nullability where it can just go like, okay, well, I've already made my struct. I don't know what the rest of this is. And you can just kind of skip over it. So this lets you have one enum rather than, or like one, one struct rather than like an enum with versions, or you could do versioning as an example, mm -hmm. but knowing how much you could skip over in the message would help in that sense. Um, as part of your deserialization, like, oh, if you filled everything up in your struct, then here's how you can skip to the next segment of the message and you can just kind of ignore the rest of it. That would also mm -hmm. work. Um, but what we, so what we, what we did was we essentially just had all these test cases, but they were all the, the production use cases uh, essentially. And um, it would run the regression test. Uh, so it was it was it was linked basically to the most recent version of the code, and so if that failed, then it was like, "Hey, you your your config won't be able to get checked in because it's not passing the most recent code version." That has its own issues in the sense that things can kind of stray out of date. But with the if your assumption is we're always going to be try to forward compatible, then you can kind of get away with that. Um, but I, I think I think setting up tests with yeah. stuff like here's here's messages for v1 here's messages for v2 
if you could get prop testing to do it so that you don't have to like generate all the use cases, that would be like fantastic, but that might be a little bit more work than some static cases, but it should help figure out uh, missing certain things or like, can it generate something that would like actually be bad um, and like break the deserialization. Um, so that way you're not writing it yourself. Uh, and then, it, you know, have it automatically add that as a test case so that future things don't do the same regression. That would be good. Um, but also if you just want like a simple thing, like static, static tests of stuff, and then just having a program that loads up as your test. And literally all it does is like read in the bytes of the message and deserializes it. And if it can do that, then it's like a successful thing because then it means I was able to put it into this. And then you can then assert that the thing that you deserialize has these values in these fields. And it's like, yeah. it's the exact version that you expected it to be, not some like other version. Like, oh, it, it, it misread this field. A temperature message when it was supposed to be motion, like. Right, and you're like, wait, no, that's not that's not it. And then like, it does the whole wrong thing. Um, so you could do that as well. I think I think those would let you capture your protocol um, so it's, it's not untestable. You don't then have to have like a whole set of like devices set up and like, can it do this? But you can say, will my message and that format be read the way I expect it to be read mm. is kind of like a good starting point, at least with testing. You could get real crazy doing all kinds of stuff with there. But generally speaking, Saturday is like pretty consistent that if you could deserialize it and the thing that you expected it to was what you expected it to be, then it's good. And then you can also then test that you can serialize it and that's the exact same thing that you had yeah. that you sent so that you can have this round tripping effect where it's should, what you got is also what you send back instead mm. of, you know, like, which should be the basic thing that serializers and deserializers do. But, you know, apparently people don't do that. And then you get uh, <laughs> CVEs. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, <laughs> um I think that would kind of at least kind of assuage those fears mm. and then like have that be part of your test suite where like I don't get to merge anything into the main branch until this set of things passes um, and that you don't and that you can kind of like handle the use cases that you expect it to be. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, well, we are a little bit past the end of the hour. Yeah. So we'll, it has been excellent talking to you before we wrap yeah, up. Yeah, it was a good time. Is there... Anything, any project you're working on, any concept, any reminder to folks out there, anything you want to plug before we uh, wrap up? Maybe not plug, but like one of the ideas that I had yesterday was uh, like, what if I could just CD into a directory and then it would set up all my dependencies and environment variables and everything else that I wanted it to do and then not call, call, like completely destroy the state of the shell that I'm in so that when I go out of it, it works. So they started working on that because I have lots of projects that I start and hopefully maybe I'll get something with that, but um, otherwise no, but hopefully, you know, people can do stuff that they enjoy and that, uh, you know, that uh, they enjoy rust. I love rust. I hope they enjoy rust. That's all I really care about. Very cool. All right. Thanks so much for being here and I'm sure I'm going to talk to you again soon. Oh yeah. I'm more than happy to come on for like another hour and talk about whatever you want. <laughs> I think I'm going to hop off this and probably figure out some kind of stream but yeah I'll, I'll send you a message if you're still sitting around for the next uh, hour or two but i'll wrap up yeah, this recording or, and awesome yeah. to talk to you yeah talk to you later okay bye-bye